It is, it is good to be back with you. As many of you have noticed, I am nice and tan. Uh, that wasn't a joke, people. That is so rude. I just got to... If you have your Bibles with you, please open them to John chapter 12. Uh, we'll be studying the last bit of this chapter, uh, beginning in verse 37 through 50 in just a minute. Americans, it seems, I think we could agree that most of us are hardwired to want to be successful at something, whether it's successful or good or excellent. We want to be excellent at business or succeed at business. We want to succeed at being parents. We want to do the best we can at these things, whether it's sports or academics or marriage. We want to be good and successful at these things. And it's not like these are bad things to be successful at. They're perfectly fine. And God has no problem with you being successful or good at business and making money. He desires for you to be good parents, and he wants you to excel at all things for his glory. So the question isn't really whether we should strive for excellence, but to consider both of the following questions. What do we strive to be excellent at? We can certainly be excellent at wrong things. And you can be excellent at just about anything anymore. Our modern day has given us quite a bit more leisure time than many generations before us have had. You can excel to be a record holder at hot dog eating. 74 in 10 minutes, that's what you've got to do. 74 hot dogs and buns in 10 minutes. That's 21,000 calories in 10 minutes. Um, I don't want to know what happens after those 10 minutes, but for those 10 minutes, you're just plowing down hot dogs. You can solve a Rubik's Cube, randomized Rubik's Cube, in less than 4.221 seconds. That's a world record as well. So you can be excellent at a number of different things. These things are not the kind of things that we ought to strive to be excellent in, though. So what do we want to be excellent at? And secondly, how do we evaluate our success? Is it just because of, of the results that we get from it? Are we successful as parents if our children turn out well? Are we successful at business only when our business thrives? Because we're Christians, these questions are narrowed considerably. The answers that we give to them are narrowed considerably. We, We don't think that it's okay to be excellent at anything. The world can answer these questions in a number of different ways and uphold these answers as good in a number of different ways. They will talk about the world record holding and hot dog eating like he has done something spectacular. He hasn't. He's just eaten a good deal of hot dogs. But this is not what we do as Christians. If we truly believe that all sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and we also then believe that God has redeemed us so that all that we do might be for his glory, then it seems like our success and what we ought to be excellent at and what we ought to be good at is giving God glory for who he is and what he has done. That is why we have been made. That is why we have been redeemed. It is the first question and answer of any good catechism. What is the chief end of man? What should man strive for? He should strive to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. This is quite a bit harder than it seems to be on first blush. After all, while Isaiah in Isaiah 6 gets to see the glory of the Lord, he gets to see his physical presence lifted up and mighty in his throne. We don't get many of those. I have never had one of those moments. The question as we turn to Jesus and asking whether he is successful, if We're gathering here 2,000 years after he roamed the earth, praising him as God. There's quite a bit of success there. Millions, if not billions of people around the world will proclaim Jesus Christ on this day as their Lord and Savior. 
be hard to answer that question is no, but our text today seems to be warning us about answering the idea that Jesus is successful simply based on the number of people that were following him. The Gospel of John is very clear that what Jesus was meant to do would have by any means been portrayed as successful. He is supposed to be the lamb who takes away the sins of the world in John 1.29. In 4.42, he is called the savior of the world. In John 6.33, he is the bread who gives life to the world. And on and on it goes. Jesus is a gift to the entirety of the world. The whole world is to be impacted by this man's life and, as we will read in a couple of months, this man's death. And even more recently than that, just a couple of weeks ago, a month ago, we read about his triumphal entry, which is so named because it was triumphant. He, he came into the applause of the crowds who took up branches and cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It seems like this is the pinnacle and the height of Jesus' ministry so that even foreign people are coming up to him and wanting to see him. And yet during all of this, John seems fit at the height of Jesus' ministry to throw a wet blanket on the whole proceedings and to warn us about the actual level of belief that's going on. Let us read from these verses and see what I mean by this. Begin reading again in verse 37. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their hearts in turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as a light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come into the world to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me does not receive my words as a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. This is the word of our God. In our text today, John seems to start with an apologetic for why Jesus was not believed in more by the people. Even at the height of his ministry, John says that this doesn't seem like it's enough for what I've been saying of him. In verse 37, he talks about, though he had done so many signs before him, they did not believe in him. Even when many of the people in authority are said to have believed in him, John even backs off of that, claiming that their belief hasn't come even to the level of confession. And even when we hear Jesus giving his summary for his entire purpose of com coming to the earth, it sounds, frankly, frankly, like he's trying to shift the blame for most of the people not believing on him, not on his worth, but on their reluctance to hear. So what are we to do with all of this? What does this tell us about Jesus? 
Certainly, I think that this shows that Jesus' success is tied, like ours, not to numbers, not to the worldly benefits that might accrue from such things, but to God's glory. And friends, this is incredibly good news for us. So let us then think through this text. Three points today. First, God's glory denies human authority. God's glory denies human authority. The very first thing that we have to take away from any talk of our salvation and the good that is wrought in our lives by the Father through Jesus Christ is this. It is ultimately and only a gift that is given to us. And by this, I don't mean it's a gift like other gifts. You see, other gifts are quite often received by us, but we don't actually care for them. And so we give them away next Christmas to somebody else, or we return them and get something we actually do like better, or we nod and smile and say, thanks, Mom and Dad, and just go on with our lives pretending that we liked it, but we didn't really. But that's not how God's gift works. God doesn't just give us the gift, but God's gift is found not just in giving the gift, but in giving the desire for the gift as well. We don't reject the gift when it comes to us. We see that here in sort of an odd way. What we have before us are people who had seen signs and didn't believe what they saw. This is in and of itself an important fact for us. Many of us, when we're going through a dark time, when we're walking down a difficult path, we don't know if God is with us. We feel we are left all alone. We feel like we are in despair. We'll cry out to God and ask him for a sign. We'll ask him for a miracle. We'll say, God, I just want to know that you're with me. I want to know that you care about me. I want to know that you are, are walking alongside of me and helping me. And we ask for a sign. We think that if we could see an image or a miracle or a proof of some kind that God is there with us, then we could believe and we could soldier on in the darkness. But eventually, we're just going to chalk that sign, that miracle, that image up to a coincidence. We're going to make sure that we explain it away or we're going to forget what it was that we actually saw. Those signs are never going to be enough for us. The signs were never enough for these people they stood and they watched incredible miracles happen and it wasn't enough to get them to believe in Christ. We ought not think that seeing is somehow better than hearing or that if God would just appeal to the right sense, then we would respond correctly. Say, Lord, I'm not, I'm not an audible learner. I'm a visual learner. Well, if you say that, good news. We have the Lord's Supper for you today. So there is a visual way that we can proclaim the gospel, but that doesn't mean what you think it means. It doesn't mean that God is going to miraculously present himself to you. People believe by hearing the word of God. These people stood in the presence of his miracles. They touched healed limbs. They ate miraculous food. And they were not enough. They didn't believe. The question then, I think, becomes why? Why were the miracles not enough? Did Jesus need to do more miracles? Well, clearly, John just gives us a brief snapshot of the many, many miracles that he has done. Was Jesus himself not winsome enough? Was his preaching not relevant enough? Was it not doctrinal enough? Was it too doctrinal? Was he not clear enough? Were his parables too messy to be able to follow through on? I think that we were right in rejecting all of those things. Why is it that these people, seeing these signs, refused to believe. And John gives a very clear answer. So that the word spoken by the prophet might be fulfilled. He says, this was foretold long ago in the prophet, and that prophet is Isaiah. Now this actual quote is from Isaiah 53.1. Whenever you hear a singular quote 
by the New Testament from the Old Testament, it likely implies numerous verses that are around that verse in the entire context. They're just picking out the chief and most important verses of that context. So if we were to go back to Isaiah, specifically Isaiah 53, and look at these verses, we would do well to understand the context in which it is buried. Isaiah 40 and following is again a major shift in the themes and the understanding of the book of Isaiah. He has laid out judgments before them, but then in Isaiah 40, a huge theme change seems to take place. And he focuses much more on the coming salvation that God will bring to his people. This has been hinted at already. In Isaiah chapter 7 and Isaiah chapter 9, those famous Christmas passages that we read from about a virgin giving birth to a son, about this child bearing the government upon his shoulders who is a wonderful counselor and mighty God. These pictures in Isaiah 7 and Isaiah 9 are sort of filled out in Isaiah 40 and on as we're not talking about a child who was simply born in Isaiah's day, but we are talking about the coming of God's servant who will carry forth his salvation to his people. The servant will indeed do everything that God has called on him to do. Isaiah 52, 13, through the text that Jesus, or through the text, excuse me, that John is talking about, reads this way. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him, for that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. Anyone who reads this passage ought to stand back and be stunned, not at what it says about Jesus, but at the utter confusion that this should bring upon us. At first, the servant is talked about as being high and lifted up. And then, the very next terms that are used about him is that he is so marred, he doesn't even seem like he is a human being. So you have at one hand, somebody being high and lifted up, and on the other hand, somebody being marred and and inhuman-like. And then he talks about that inhumanity, that marring of him, seems to be the very thing which leads the kings to give obedience to him. The kings themselves shut their mouths and he sprinkles them clean. It's very strange. Isaiah asks the helpful question, who indeed believes this? He uses this royal we. Who has believed our report? Who has believed what he has heard from us? It's not just Isaiah who's been talking this way. The prophets in general have been talking this way. They've been proclaiming this, but who has been listening? And he doesn't just mean in his time. He means throughout all of time. Indeed, the arm of the Lord has been revealed. The arm of the Lord is a picture of salvation. We read from the beginning of Deuteronomy 4, at the end of Deuteronomy 4, Moses says this to his people. Has any God ever attempted to go and take a nation for himself from the midst of another nation? by trials, by signs, by wonders, and by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, and by great deeds of terror, all of which the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes. To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God. There is no other beside him. 
Not only did we read from that passage this morning, a little bit earlier in that passage, but we also read from Psalm 89, which, again, has the exact same sort of themes in it. Psalm 89.10, you crushed Rahab like a carcass. You scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. Psalm 89.13, you have a mighty arm. Strong is your hand, high your right hand. Psalm 89.21, which we all said this morning, my hand shall be established with him. My arm also shall strengthen him. It is a picture of salvation. It is great deeds and wonders that have been done in their midst. And Jesus has done these things. It's the very idea, the very idea of Deuteronomy that you have seen the work of the Lord. You've seen his miracles go forth. You have seen the work of his hand done before you. And yet, you don't see it. The strength of the Lord is shown in Jesus His great arm is clearly revealed, but it is not seen. His salvation has come forth, but it is not received. And the servant is high and lifted up, but it's not exalted by them. He is indeed marvelous and wonderful and awe-inspiring and lifted up, but they don't see it. They don't believe what their eyes are telling them. Therefore, notice what John says. It does not say that God therefore looked down the tunnel of time And he saw that these people weren't going to believe. Like when you watch America's Funniest Home Videos and you're watching a guy riding a bike and he goes over a cliff and you're like, he's not coming down well on that bike seat. Like, you know that because you've seen enough and you know what's going to happen. God is not looking through the future or to the future and seeing what's going to happen and simply proclaiming what will happen. John doesn't let that be our interpretation because he says very clearly, not therefore they didn't believe or therefore God knew that they wouldn't believe. He says very clearly, therefore they could not believe. You know what the Greek of that passage means? It means they could not believe. It means that they didn't have the ability to believe. God prophesied that they wouldn't believe and then he made it so. His glory refuses to bow down to human authority, even over our own choices and actions. These people could not believe. In an odd turn of events, Jesus' miracles show the power of the Lord, his arm and his might, and they show him as excellent and wise and lifted up. But they don't believe it. And so they will deny him. They will crucify him. They will mar him. They will put him on a cross, which to them will make him almost inhuman. And in doing so, by God hardening their hearts and blinding them, he will make them fulfill exactly what what Isaiah 53 had already been talking about. They will mar him, even though he is indeed high and lifted up. And it is by their crucifying him that he will bring the obedience of the nations, that he will bring salvation to all. In order for our salvation to come through, they must be rejected, they must be hardened, they must be blinded to bring about our great knowledge of Jesus Christ and the glory of God revealed on the cross. Remember Isaiah 6. Isaiah goes to the throne room, and he sees the Lord sitting upon that throne, high and lifted up. The train of the robe fills the temple, and the whole earth was proclaimed to be filled with his glory. Thrice holy was this Lord. Missionaries love to preach this text. God says, who will go for me? And Isaiah says, I will, I will go. He's cleansed. God sends him out, but he sends him out 
in the knowledge, immediately in the knowledge, that his very proclamation of what the Lord is giving him to say will harden the hearts of the people that he proclaims to and will make them deaf to what he has to say. Notice in our text, John 39, therefore they could not believe, for again, Isaiah said, so this is the explanation of why they couldn't believe, for again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. God blinds them. God hardens them. There's a severity here, but there is also tremendous mercy. Listen to what God says here. If they were to turn for even an instant, if they were to give up their sin for a second, if they were just to turn back in hope, even a glimmer of a hope, they would be healed instantly. God would undo everything on them. He would forgive them. He would heal them. It's like Lot's wife in reverse. If after walking away from him, they were just to turn back and look at him for a second, not a pillar of salt, but a a new nation he would make them. Our God is incredibly merciful. But no, because he is merciful, because the salvation must come this way, They must go through with their schemes if they are to bring about the salvation that God has long since planned. Friends, know this. They saw all of the miracles that they needed to see. They heard all of the words they needed to hear, and they still did not believe. Are we today to sit here and think that we do better? That we have believed because we are smarter, because we're more intelligent, because we're more noble, because we're more reasonable, Why do you believe? And so many people out there don't believe. Has nothing to do with you. Any such attitude only increases your boasting before the Lord, the very thing that the gospel was made to do away with. You have no boasting in the gospel. It is a gift given to you. If you are to boast, you boast in what the Lord has done for you. We don't see things better. We don't hear things better. It is God who opens up hearts and minds. This passage is going to be incredibly reminiscent of the first chapter of John's gospel, where we read in verses 12 and 13, All who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man. They didn't didn't choose to be born. They didn't ask to be born. They didn't... They didn't summon up the courage to be born, but they were born simply by the will of God. This is the issue of God's glory. He doesn't leave it up to the whims of man. Remember, most of the miracles that Jesus has done were all independent of faith, save the healing of the the military man's son in the end of John chapter 4. The rest of the miracles that John presents to us are presented to us without any respect of faith by the people being receiving the miracle or being healed by him. John tells us that Jesus makes water into wine for the people who are getting married and for their families so that they wouldn't be humiliated. None of them came and asked Jesus to do this. None of them confessed their faith that Jesus would do this. As a matter of fact, the man who tastes the wine doesn't seem to even know who Jesus is or that he has done it. miraculously makes food, not, without the, not with the crowd's cry of asking him to, but simply because he chooses to. 
He heals the man born lame. He asks the man, do you want to be healed? And the man doesn't even give him an answer and he heals him anyway. We have nothing from the blind man. The blind man is healed before we ever hear him utter a word. Lazarus is already dead. He can't ask for a miracle. All of the miracles are done simply because Christ is merciful. And if you've believed, he has done the same for you. You believe because he is merciful. You believe because he's gracious. God is the one who has acted. God is the one who has given. God is the one who has provided. God is the one who has sealed. You, friend, simply receive. Our stance before him has to be nothing but humility. God will not share his glory or will not give his glory to others. This means that God has the authority to give salvation to whom he wills and to keep salvation from whom he wills. It is not up to you, it is not up to me, but it is up to the will of the Lord. God has hardened these to bring salvation to you. That ought to inspire us to give praise to God. God's glory denies human authority. And praise God for that. Secondly, God's glory desires human confession. Of these who do believe, there are many, John says. They thought that Jesus might just be who he said he was, or they believe that the rumors of what the people are saying, they refuse to say so out loud. They're concerned about the rabidness of their fellow leaders. They, they hear how they talk in hatred of Jesus, and they wonder exactly what those people would do to them. These who are the leaders are most likely to lose much by having this no-named man from the, the sticks coming to Jerusalem and leading a rebellion against Rome. And so they don't want to lose. And so they're going to fight tooth and nail to keep what they have. And anyone with two cents of thoughts in their heads rolling around can say, if they're willing to kill an innocent man, they're certainly willing to do away with us who follow him. So because they don't want to be kicked out of the synagogue, they refuse to speak up. John doesn't mince words. He says very clearly, they didn't confess openly because they loved the glory of man above the glory of God. Simply stated, they wanted men's approval more than they wanted God to be glorified. Our world wants almost all of our strong beliefs to be private. Just like these leaders, they kept all of their thoughts about Jesus to themselves. They thought that they could sit in a corner and think peaceably to themselves, confessing to themselves that Jesus is indeed who he has said he was, and maybe that they would be okay, that they could escape the wrath of God and they could escape the wrath of the world. They could hedge their bets. Our world wants almost all of our strong beliefs to be this way. We speak of the freedom of worship this way. Too many times it comes out that what people who are in politics believe freedom of worship is supposed to be is that you can have your own private beliefs. And whatever they are, as long as you keep them private, you can believe what you want to believe. I, I have no idea why anyone who would have penned the Declaration of Independence, who would have penned our Constitution, would have penned that First Amendment, thought that they had to tell you that the government can't tell you what to think. Because I don't know of a government who has ever had that ability. No government has the ability to tell you what to think. And if you don't open up your mouth, you're not going to get in trouble for it. That's not freedom of religion. But more importantly than anything that our Constitution might have to say about it, the Bible simply refuses to allow us to do this. Listen, many of your beliefs should be private. 
I don't care what you think of cartoons or sugary cereals or the nature of 14th century political discourse. Keep it to yourself. You can tell me if we're having a good conversation about 13th century political discourse and it matters. But otherwise, it just doesn't matter much, right? But when it comes to confessing Christ, that is not something that we can keep to ourselves. That is not something that can be kept private, that you can believe in your corner because you want to hedge your bets in case it's not actually true. The leaders here need to learn this. They want to hedge their bets so that the rest who are Pharisees might still think well of them. It's a difficult bit to translate. They love the glory that comes from man, is what the ESV says, more than the glory that comes from God. It's not quite right. It's not quite wrong. It's not quite right, as other passages do, like the NIV and the Holman, to translate this as praise, the praise that comes from men rather than the praise that comes from God. There's a difficulty in keeping some parallels here that don't quite work in English and won't ever work no matter how we try to get them to work. I think what it simply means is that they refused to lay aside the praise that they would get from men. They refused to be looked at badly by men so that they might exalt and glorify God. They refused to confess Jesus and to glorify him. And instead, refusing to do that, thought that they could maintain the glory that they got from men. They wanted to be high and lifted up in the sight of the men instead of having God high and lifted up. And notice how this works out. It's not that they can't say good things about God, but simply that they didn't confess Christ. And friends, this is one of the very biggest concerns that would come from something like this in your life. It's not just the fact that we might make our beliefs private. It's also that when we make them public, we make them public so generically, not because we maliciously want to keep our confession of Jesus Christ to ourselves, but simply because this is the way the world always talks. When it wants to say something about the deity, it almost always uses this word God, which in our culture means almost nothing. God can be anything. The culture will speak of God's grace, of God's mercy, of God's peace, of God's blessing, of God's joy, of God's happiness. They will speak of these things. And frankly, the majority of us have no idea if we truly asked ourselves what they mean by God. We have no idea if they mean a powerful force, if they mean a set of rules to follow, if they mean the God of Islam, if they mean the God of the Mormons, or if they mean the God of Christianity. And that's one of the very reasons why the world wants you to speak like that. These Pharisees could get up and they could say all of the right things about God, but outside of confessing Jesus, they'll never get in trouble for it. They're not being bold. They're not being outlandish in their statements. And I want to warn you and caution you against speaking in generalities about God. Saying things like, well, you know, God is always good to me. That's fine. and That's true. God is always good to you. But be more bold than that. Jesus is always good to you. Don't hesitate to confess the name of Jesus when it comes to these things. Anything that you would say of God is true of Jesus because Jesus is, you know, God. And so if it's God who blesses you, it's Jesus who blesses you. Now, it's true that people can still be confused as to what you might mean by Jesus and the kind of Jesus that you are presenting. But you are also at the same time at least confessing what Jesus has actually done. 
This is especially important in places where it will actually cost us, where it is costly and can hurt us in front of the eyes of others. Don't fear man, fear God. Give Jesus the glory that he is due by confessing his name. It is, after all, the pinnacle and the centerpiece of our salvation. In Romans 10, 9 through 10, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. And this, after all, is at the end of the day, the end of all of history, when every knee will bow on heaven and earth and below the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. So to rightly honor him is to confess his glory through our proclamation of the gospel. We proclaim the gospel by confessing Jesus. And the gospel can only be truly preached by focusing and centering on Jesus Christ. And this is true because of our third point. God's glory is displayed in the human Christ. God's glory is displayed in the human Christ. Verses 44 through 50 provide basically nothing new to the Gospel of John. None of this is stuff that you have not heard before. It has been in the passages that we have read and we have talked about, we've preached through. The, all of this is here. It's linked back to the first chapter. It's linked to chapter 8. It's linked all over the Gospel. It rather briefly summarizes and succinctly summarizes what John's Gospel is all about. And this is probably because they are the last statements that Jesus makes publicly. But they consist of things that we might not really associate with the gospel. Certain, the center of it, has two factors that we generally do associate with the gospel and that we probably think should be there. First, the summary of Jesus saying that he has come as the light of the world. I have come as light into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. He gives illumination to those who are in darkness. This means knowledge. It means insight. It means hope. It means purpose. It is a picture of salvation itself. It gives one the ability to walk rightly, to tread on righteous paths, and to not fall away, so that you don't fall into a pit that you don't see. You have it illuminated for you. This picture of Jesus is not only true of John chapter 8 where Jesus says, I am the light of the world, but again it harkens back to the very beginning of the gospel in John 1, verses 4 and 9, which read, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. This is a natural way of speaking about Jesus, especially in the gospel of John. The second bit of the center portion of this is Jesus giving a warning about denying him. He says, I haven't come to judge the world. I haven't come to condemn the world. But nevertheless, rejection of him naturally follows from him coming into the world and thus condemnation. This quote, by the way, where he speaks about, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world, is reminiscent of John 3, 17 through 20. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. So two very normal ways of speaking about Jesus. Jesus is the light. If you confess him, if you cling to him, if you understand him and you hope in him, he is a light to you. He will bring salvation to you. But if you reject him, you stand condemned. The words of Jesus will condemn you. 
The very nature of what Jesus was to bring condemns you. These comments are bracketed by, perhaps, themes that are larger and more important to John's gospel than even the themes of light and rejection. And that is Jesus' relation to the Father. In verse 44, the emphasis is on their essential nature and identity. They are one. They have the same essence. They have the same will. They are the same in their very nature. Therefore, to believe in Jesus is to believe in God the Father. To believe in Jesus is to believe in the one who has sent him. In verse 49, at the very end of our passage, the emphasis is still on their nature, essential nature and identity, but only somewhat in reverse. To receive Christ is to receive the Father, but to reject him is nothing less than to reject the Father. Jesus has only spoken and only ever speaks precisely what the Father has given him to speak. And therefore, if you reject the words of Jesus, you reject the words of the Father. You cannot have Jesus without having the Father, and you cannot have the Father without having Jesus. So the way in which the gospel is given to us is through and only through Jesus Christ. He is, as Paul would say, the image of the invisible God. He is the exact imprint of his nature and the radiance of his glory. Therefore, as the very way in which God communicates to us, as his word made flesh, Jesus is commanded by God to speak eternal life to us. To reject that message is to reject eternal life and to be condemned. The question that comes to us then is, why is that so? God can speak to us through any of a number of means. Isn't this what the world tells us? I know you Christians want Jesus to be really important, and he can be really important, but he doesn't need to be exclusive. God can speak in a number of different ways. He he can speak through creation. He can speak through the stars, and he can speak through the leaves and the trees and the salamanders that run along the hot ground. He can speak to you through those things. He can speak to our hearts directly. He can speak, if he chose to, through other religions, couldn't he? Is your God not mighty and powerful enough to do that? The answer is no. Not because God isn't mighty enough to do that, but because when God communicates to us, he always and can only ever communicate to us through his word, Jesus Christ. So if it's not Jesus who is speaking to us, it is not the word of God. And if it's not the word of God, then it's not God talking to you. This is why Islam and Buddha and Mormons are wrong. And why they are the product not of God, but of some other force, whether human or satanic. The only way that God communicates to us is through Jesus Christ. He is the rock that fed and had water for the Israelites in the desert. He is the messenger that protected them. He is no less than the Lord who spoke to him. This is why I love the phrase, the gospel is Trinitarian and the Trinity is the gospel. The gospel is nothing less than the presentation of the Trinity to the world. It is God revealing himself as Father, Son, and Spirit. To know the Trinity is to know the good news, that the Father has sent the Son, the Son has died, and the Spirit applies this to your life. To know the good news is to know and understand and appreciate something of the fact that God is a Trinity. It is to know God the Father only and ever through Jesus Christ, his Son, and we cannot know God outside of that. Just for a second, look at something odd, I think, that John says about Isaiah in verse 41. 
he says he wrote these things because he saw his glory and spoke of it. Okay. Given that the quotation that comes directly before that is from chapter 6 of Isaiah, where he specifically is taken into the throne room and sees the Lord sitting on a throne, and he hears the angels calling back and forth, holy, holy, holy. It's very easy for us to think that when he says, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him, that that is referring to that particular incident in the throne room. But, but, John has already linked what is happening in Isaiah 53 to Isaiah 6. Notice kind of the logic that comes through verses 38 all the way through 39. We are right to think that this glory of Isaiah being seen is not just God sitting on the throne, but of the sight of the man in Isaiah 53. Notice. these people couldn't believe because of what Isaiah 53 said. And they couldn't believe precisely because God said that he would harden their hearts and God said that he would blind them. They couldn't see because of something that happened in John 6 and therefore John 53 is true. That's what John is saying. He has linked them together already. To fulfill Isaiah 53, they couldn't believe and the reason they couldn't believe is because of Isaiah 6. But even more compelling than that is to notice that John says these things in verse 41. These things, not this thing. John didn't say Isaiah said this. He said this, meaning singular, in Isaiah 6. He said these things, which is linking Isaiah 53 and Isaiah 6 in my mind together. He said both of these things. Why? Because he saw his glory. Now, that means... When John refers to Isaiah seeing the glory of God, he is not just referring to God seeing him sit on a throne filled with wonder and glory, awesome and high and lifted up three times holy, but to also see him just as gloriously as a human being who is a servant to God, marred, without form or majesty, without beauty, despised and rejected by men, not esteemed, as the one who bears our sins and carries our sorrows, one who was wounded for our sins and crushed for our iniquities. This is the paradoxical and dual glory that Isaiah sees. He sees a God who is unlike any other, whose glory will fill the entirety of the world, and he sees how that glory fulfills the entirety of the world by watching one who is crushed for our sins and seeing one who is rejected by the leaders and yet highly exalted in God's sight. What John sees in chapter 6 is the same one that John sees in Isaiah 53. He saw his glory and he spoke of him. He is not speaking just of the Father. He is speaking of the Son. The Son, the second person of the Trinity, the one who would be exalted by, both by a glory in the throne room and by the ignominy of the cross. He sees him high and lifted up in both places. And all of this is because Christ is no less than the radiance of God and the exact imprint of the nature of the Father. The way in which God always reveals himself to us, even to Isaiah in the Old Testament, God only reveals himself as the person of Jesus Christ. Even though he was not fully enfleshed in humanity yet, he saw him as the pre-incarnate Christ. And here, 
perhaps is the most amazing part that we will get to in chapters 13 through 17. This Christ, because he has taken on human flesh, unites the glory and the power and the radiance and the beauty and the majesty of God to us. We get to be united to him. Not only in his crucifixion, but also in his glory. We are united with him in Isaiah 53. We are united with him in Isaiah 6. That is the wonderful and beautiful picture. We share in this love. We share in his power, in his beauty, and his glory. This is not a piece of good news. This is the good news. Where else are you going to find that? that? That is ultimately only found in Jesus Christ. When Moses came down the mountain, he had been in the presence of God. And in being in the presence of God, his face radiated with glory. It was a light that shined out from his face. And so the Israelites did what anyone would do when they see something like this happen. They say, hey man, cover that thing up. And so he put on a veil to cover up the radiance because it was so bright they couldn't even look at him. Paul takes that and he says, we, you know, you know that the glory that we have is much brighter than that. Moses gets it secondhand. You get it by the very presence of God. We have a much clearer sight of his glory. We have a much greater presence in the very nature of God. By the word spoken to us, even by the table that is before us, we enter into the glory of God. So let us therefore be much bolder than Moses, who had to veil himself. Don't leave here veiling your faces. Don't cover up the glory that you see, that you share, that you experience, but rather let it shine for all. Let our authority melt away. Let the confession roll off our lips and let the world bask in the sight of the glory of Jesus Christ, who is the mighty God, high and lifted up, and the one who is crucified for your sins. Let us pray. Father, we come to you this morning. And worship you this morning only through the Son you have sent for us and our salvation, Jesus Christ. His death has secured our forgiveness, his resurrection, our life. We have nothing and can bring nothing to this great salvation. We are wholly dependent on your love and care for each of us. We have no good gifts to earn your favor, no mighty acts to win your smile. Yet you have given all that we have ever needed, the very great gift of Jesus Christ, our Lord. May the praise of us we sinners who are poor and needy, be a sweet sound to your ear this morning. We ask these things so that Jesus Christ might be glorified before your presence forever. Amen.